But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith, and this week we are joined by Dr. Sarah Riccardi-Swartz, who is an assistant professor of religion and anthropology at Northeastern University, and is also the author of Between Heaven and Russia, Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in Appalachia. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I guess just to begin with... Maybe uh, the cliff notes on uh, what is Orthodox Christianity, just to give us a bit of a, a basis of understanding. Yeah, so Orthodox Christianity is one of the three branches of Christianity. You have Protestantism, Catholicism, and Orthodoxy. It's probably most widely known in its sort of nationalistic iterations. So you think Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, Romanian. A lot of your listeners may have seen my big fat Greek wedding, and so they might have a limited knowledge of what Orthodoxy is. But it is a, a faith that is formed in a sacramental life, uh, much like Catholicism, and is it considers itself, it prizes itself on being sort of unchanging um, over the centuries where uh, Catholicism and Protestantism have sort of gone through innovations. So think Vatican II with Catholicism and think of Protestantism as a sort of ongoing renovation and deconstruction. Now, the other thing that your book about is Appalachia. Uh, maybe just uh, for our listeners who might be familiar with it through stereotypes, <laughs> what, 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 where is Appalachia and what's it, what's it all about? So Appalachia is a cultural region in the United States. It's arguably sort of a social and geographically constructed region. And it reaches from what we might consider the lower portions or the southern portions of, of New York State to the upper or northern areas of Alabama or Georgia, which are on the Gulf. And it is, uh, <laughs> it's a, it, there's a long story with Appalachia, but one of the main things that your listeners should probably know is that Appalachia has been marginalized in the American public consciousness because of poverty. It is, I think it still is arguably, a great area for um, natural resources and companies, extractive companies, sort of bought into that early on and dug out much of the wealth in Appalachia. So think coal mines in West Virginia and coal in Pennsylvania. And what that did is it it hollowed out a really wealthy area of its resources, but it also left the people there impoverished in declining health because of the environmental uh, devastation that was going on. And this is widely across Appalachia. So it's a, it is a place of poverty and it is also a place of immense wealth, depending on what side of this sort of extractive relationship you're on. So to put it all together, you have written this book between heaven and Russia, which is about a community of Russian Orthodox Christians in Appalachia. H- how did you come across these people? Yeah. Well, I, I started working on Eastern Orthodoxy when I was doing my first master's degree in Missouri. And when I went on to do my PhD at NYU, 
I was really interested in sort of uh, thinking about the reproduction of Russian Orthodoxy in the United States and the reproduction of religious art or iconography, which is a large part of the social and religious life of Orthodox Christians. They have icons in their homes, they have icons in their parishes, their images of Christ and the saints. And so I was sort of looking at two layers of reproduction. And I thought I would actually end up at a Russian Orthodox monastery in upstate New York. And I went there and the abbot of the monastery said, "Uh, we don't want a woman hanging around a men's monastery. That's not good for us. So I said, all right, where, you know, where do you think I should go? And he said, well, there's a group of, of converts to the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which is a, a satellite of the Russian Orthodox Church. And uh, he said, perhaps you should go there. They might like you. We're, we're quite different from them. And so if you like them, you you'll probably wouldn't like us and vice versa. So I went down in the summer of 2015 to this community. It's a monastery in a parish. And... I was really fascinated from the get-go because they had icons. They had an icon printing studio, and they were uh, digitally manipulating icon prints and then uh, producing them for sale. And I was just totally enthralled with this idea. And I said, look, um, my PhD program has a documentary film component, so I'll be making a documentary film. Could I do a documentary about the reproduction of icons? And they said, sure, we would love that. And So I went back uh, and stayed with the priest who ran the Icon Studio. I eventually went there for a week and shot the entire film and really thought I was going to eventually do fieldwork there on sort of this idea of uh, two layers of reproduction. And when I went back after filming my documentary and screened it there and decided to live there for a year, I found that no one wanted to talk about Icons, but they did want to talk about politics. So that's how I sort of ended up in that community. When you talk to them about politics, uh, where are they coming from politically? Well, I mean, they're mostly conservative and they're living in an area of of Appalachia that by and large skews conservative on sort of think presidential American elections. But yeah, they're so they're coming from conservative backgrounds. Uh, Most of them are converts from evangelicalism or Catholicism and many of them traditionalist Catholicism. So they're coming from a background where they're they're already invested in sort of a conservative worldview, and uh, Russian Orthodoxy is just sort of the next step for them. You write in the book about how uh, there are some in the alt right who find Russian Orthodox Christianity outside of Russia or Rokor uh, appealing. What is it that is uh, appealing about it to them? Well, you know, it's 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 kind of complicated, but I'm going to try to boil it down for your audience. So the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, uh, known as Rokor, was not in communion with the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia for m- a better part of the 20th century, in part because of the Soviet era and the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church sort of went in line with what the Soviets said. Rokor uh, has always seen itself as preserving Russian Orthodoxy prior to the Soviet Union. And so it sort of went in exile, as it were, or went abroad to keep and per- and preserve many aspects of Russian Orthodoxy that would have been, they believe, destroyed by the Soviets. So it's, it's always prized itself as being a sort of traditional, closed world that has kept its uh, values, ideas, even its liturgical languages, in order to remissionize Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. When the fall of the Soviet Union happened, when it ended, Russian Orthodox people 
in the United States looked at Russia and said, oh, well, the church is sort of coming back there, sort of flourishing. So what are we going to do? They then turned their gaze towards the United States and said, maybe converts would be interested in, in this. And indeed, they were. So the people that come to the Russian Orthodox Church are often interested in sort of this traditionalist understanding of Christianity, and they see in uh, Russian Orthodoxy sort of a, a space in which Christianity has not changed, which is, you know, arguably, <laughs> arguably everything changes over time, right? But they see in Orthodoxy something that has not changed, and they wanted something that was outside of, at least the people I talked with, they wanted something that was outside of Western secularism. They wanted something mystical that withstood the test of time. And they really believe they found that in Rokor, that here's a church that experienced persecution, that went abroad, that preserved itself, that reunited with the Russian Orthodox Church in 2007, and so is now part of this sort of revival of Russian Orthodoxy globally. And that appealed to them. And they also saw that Russian Orthodoxy has these really unique tie, political ties, both in terms of uh, historically, Rokor prior to being Rokor, if you think about the the faction that left Russia, they were uh, czarist in uh, their support. And right now, in the contemporary context, Rokor supports Putin. So they really saw turning to Orthodoxy as aiding both their sort of conservative social values that they brought in but also being a place where they could uh, experience true sort of historical Christianity. Being czarist, but also supporting Putin, you, you write about uh, there's this monarchist bent. Do they see Putin as sort of a new king? Yeah. Uh, there, so there's this one young guy who was a convert, and he was also um, a very uh, high-ranking clergy member at the monastery. And he said, I, re- like, I remember him saying this to me in such vivid de- I will never forget him saying this to me. And and it just, I think about it daily. He said that Putin is an echo of Tsar Martyr Nicholas. And so they really see in Putin somebody who's trying to promote traditional family values, uh, religious sort of expressions in the public sphere, a particular type of Christian worldview that has specific aims. And much of that is preserving Christian, white, heterosexual hegemony. You also write in the book about Dugin, Alexander Dugin, who's a sort of a complicated figure within Russia uh, and in so far as his relation to Putin. How, how do the people within Rokor view Dugin? Well, it's really interesting to me. And in, after I left the field, I went, I went back to the monastery where the abbot told me, no, thank you. <laughs> and there was a conference uh, run by converts and mostly converts presented at it that was called Chastity, Purity and Integrity. And it was about sort of creating a orthodox anthropology in the secular world. So much of the content focused on, you know, how do I how do I school my child in a way that doesn't have them indoctrinated with, you know, gay rights info, et cetera, in the United States? Should I pull my child out of public school, et cetera? And I remember really clearly walking in there to this conference. And there's this young, very blonde man who was carrying under his arm a copy of uh, Dugan's Primer on the Fourth Political Theory. And I said, oh, do you, re- do you read Dugan? And he said, oh, of course I read Dugan. And it was really interesting to me because Dugan had come up in conversations uh, during my fieldwork in Appalachia, but most, most people in that community were not 
particularly interested in Dugan. Um, they were interested in older uh, European philosophers who were more traditionalist. So René Guénon, uh, Julius Evola in, in Italy. And so they weren't really interested as much in Dugan as uh, the next wave of, of Rocor converts that I saw, which were younger and sort of more politically attuned, even more so than the community that I was with in Appalachia. I mean, that, that conference you described, those sort of issues seem to be things that are animating the general Christian nationalist scene in America and conservative politics. Uh, how does the uh, culture wars play into this conversion experience? I, you know, I think it plays in a great deal. There's the language of this culture war is embedded in, in, in every conversation that I sort of document in that book. There's the idea that the United States is on a profoundly uh, terrifying trajectory towards moral failings, and that if the ship of America is not righted again in some sort of metaphysical way, everything will end. So here is this sort of language of, um, you know, Western secularism is bad. And how do we overcome that? Well, we turn to Russia, which is having a spiritual revival, so it must be holy. I think what happens with this sort of culture wars language that this Christian nationalist language is that it takes on a Russian flavor for them because they're specifically attuned to Russian orthodoxy and Russian politics. And they see in in Russia the potential to make the United States not great again like Trump, but perhaps holy again. You're listening to Yena Pesaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Sarah Riccardi-Swartz about Appalachia and the Russian Orthodox Church. Could you explain this concept of the Third Rome? Yeah, so it is a very, very complicated Russian Orthodox theology. And I, I specifically say Russian Orthodox theology because you don't find it present, say, like in Greek Orthodoxy or... Uh, Romanian or Serbian. It's, it is a specifically Russian theology. It's this idea that you have seats of power, right? So Rome being the seat of, of the Pope. And you have uh, Constantinople, which was the seat of power at one time in Russian or in uh, Orthodox history. The last seat of power in Russian Orthodox sort of mystical theology is uh, Moscow. Moscow is the third Rome. And if the third Rome falls, then so too falls the world. And so the idea is that Russia has a sort of uh, pivotal role to play in either the protection of the world or its demise. It's a little bit apocalyptic. <laughs> Not just a little bit, I don't think, right? <laughs> it's very apocalyptic. But it's, you know, what I find is it's sort of not a dystopian apocalypticism as you find in evangelicalism broadly, where it's like the end of everything, it's going to be total destruction and torment, and then Christ will come back. It's more of this, it's, it's a more of a utopian apocalypticism. If we can transform everything now, if we can get rid of woke leftists now, the world will be uh, the way it should be. The world will be righted. The world will be holy again. So even in its sort of um, darkness, it's utopian. You've identified that there are these converts to Rokor who you know, are coming from a far-right perspective, and some of them describe themselves as radicalized. And it also seems that there are, there are people like younger converts who are perhaps going even further than uh, some of the people you were originally looking at. Uh, is this a concern for the church uh, or is this uh, sort of something that is maybe not talked about? 
I think when it is talked about, for instance, there was an NPR piece on the influx of of white Christian nationalists to Rocor specifically. And the many in Rocor were very angry about that piece because they felt like it was just part of the leftist agenda to to destroy Christianity, when in fact it's it's an attempt by many who study how or and are in the church to help people figure out what's going on. And I will tell you that I receive constantly emails from mostly from older Russian women who are very upset about what's happening in the Russian Orthodox Church abroad. They don't understand why all of these white men are coming in, young white men, who are telling them that they're not being truly Orthodox the way they're practicing their faith. And that makes them uneasy. And it's not surprising to me that it it makes them uneasy. It it is in many ways i've said i've said elsewhere that it's sort of the colonization of an immigrant faith by white men white men coming in taking over positions of power and positions of authority and telling people who have been in the church far longer than them and who were essentially raised in the church uh what they should and should not do so it is i, I think it is a concern both in terms of uh political violence but also it's a, a concern in terms of folks in the church who feel uneasy with their own placement. Uh, Sarah, I was curious, just in terms of the logistics of writing this book, what were some of the challenges of you know, spending a year uh, living <laughs> with monks in Appalachia? <laughs> oh my gosh, do you have like three hours? <laughs> were, 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 there, were there any? Oh, there were so many. I mean, you know, it's it, it, just in terms of living in Appalachia, it, it was it was difficult. I mean, I lived on in a, in a cabin on the side of a mountain, and I rarely had Wi Fi. You know, like I, I I couldn't run two things at once. Like I could either open a Word doc and type and save it, or you know, I could watch TV. Like there was no in between. And you know, the power would go out, and there was bats and bugs, and it was it was crazy, right? Like it was it was really wild. But I think in terms of the fieldwork itself, like. Fieldwork is always this weird process of, you know, listening and documenting and representing people. And all of those things have each have their specific challenges. And it's really hard as a researcher to sort of realize, um, especially in my position, that you're one of the first people to document a group and its complexities. And so that is that's a lot of responsibility. There's only a handful of anthropologists and social scientists who work on orthodoxy in the United States. So I'm really one of the first generators of this type of research. And that that's a heavy responsibility. It's it's a responsibility to the community themselves, but it's also a responsibility to future academics who might work with these communities. And that those responsibilities really, I think, come into sharp relief when you work in um, smaller, smaller groups who are politically radical. And it's important to let the voices of those people sort of be the drivers of the research and the representation. And that's why, you know, you, you read the book, there's really large sections of these, these recorded conversations. I mean, I think there's like one page that's taken up with um, the Abbott's recorded conversation alone. It's like in, you know, in set a a direct quote, because I, I really feel like we too often stereotype people from Appalachia and we also stereotype conservative Christians. And that's a problem because it leans into this polarization that we experience, not just in the United States, but globally. And it doesn't really allow for us to understand why people come to these views and what's motivating them and driving them. So that that's one of the reasons why I'm, I am focused in my anthropological work 
on really letting the voice of the people who I'm interviewing speak for themselves. How do you sort of navigate that ethical question that comes up in anthropology, especially when you're dealing with uh, groups that are, have got a radical element where perhaps they wouldn't want to talk to you if they knew that you didn't agree with them? So, you know, it's interesting because this community knew me. I was there a year ahead of time and I went there and I said, look, I'm interested in learning why you converted to Russian Orthodoxy. And they said, okay, sure, that's great. And I, of course, had to get ethical approval from not only my institutional review board at the university, universities have these sort of multi-tier review systems. Before you can even begin a study, it has to be approved. And uh, we have to show that we're being ethical as scholars, and we're not going to harm our human subjects. And then we have to obtain consent. So there's all these, of course, layers of bureaucratic protection for human subjects to begin with. And you have that sort of over you as as something that you can't you can't really do anything about, which is important because it's a protection for the people you're working with. Um, it's a way to to keep anthropologists ethical, and it's very necessary. So then you have that, and then you have um, how do you ask people these questions, right? How do you ask them complicated questions that might make them angry? Well, for me, it was it was really interesting because I went in and I didn't start interviewing um, until late fall. I, I moved to the community in September and I started, my first interview was October, in, in late October. And I asked a very specific set of questions that I asked everyone. Everyone received a, a PDF or a Word doc of questions in advance. And there were a few questions that I hadn't formulated yet because I didn't know that they were so interested in politics until, the, until late fall. And when I figured it out with that first interview, <laughs> I said, look, I need to figure out a way to talk to people about politics. And they seem like really into Vladimir Putin. So I called my advisor. I said, what do I do? He said, well, you tell the IRB, IRB board that you have to add some questions. And so I did. I said, look, I need to ask this set of questions, which were very simple. Like, how do you feel about Vladimir Putin? How do you feel about Russia? Where do you consider yourself on the U.S. political spectrum? There were very few, there were less than five questions, political questions that I asked them. And so I said, yes, that's fine, as long as they consent to it. I said, great. So everyone gave consent on the record. All, all interviews were recorded. And I gave them the questions in advance. And when I gave them, I usually would email them to them. And I said, look, if there are any questions on here you feel uncomfortable with, please let me know. And I won't ask them. At the same time, if there are questions that I ask and you spark something that might lead to a, a really stimulating conversation... I'm going to ask you that. And if you feel uncomfortable in the moment, then you just say, I don't want to be recorded, stop the recording, etc. What's really interesting is I would ask a question like, how do you feel about Russia? And I would have 35 minutes of just somebody talking about how they felt about Russia. And nobody seemed to have a problem with stating their opinion. In fact, one man said to me, you're the first person who's ever cared about my opinion on anything. And I think for many of them, it was really liberating to say how they felt in a space in which they knew they would be anonymized in a book. So I didn't actually have any problem. The one place where I felt uncomfortable was uh, during Thanksgiving dinner with uh, a prominent cleric in the in the community. And he was, you know, talking pretty uh, harshly about Hillary Clinton and joking and and he'd had a few glasses of wine. And his daughter, his teenage daughter got really uncomfortable. And she said, you know, dad, you shouldn't joke about Hillary Clinton. Sarah might have voted for. Her. 
And I thought in that moment, he's going to ask me. And if he asks me, of course, I'm going to tell him I voted for Hillary Clinton. I'm not going to lie to him. And he never asked. He just, he just, he rolled his eyes. He took a drink of wine and he said, oh, please. And then he just kept talking. And it was really fascinating to me that no one in the course of my, (laughs) my year in that community ever asked my political opinion. When I would ask them how they felt about Putin, nobody would respond, well, how do you feel about Putin? And that to me was, I think, the most shocking part of the the, the whole experience. Speaking of Putin, uh, at the at the time you've done this fieldwork, obviously uh, there's some anti-Putin feeling uh, in the general community. Yeah, uh, the war in Ukraine has amplified that significantly. Yeah, uh, what's been the reaction within Rocor to the war in Ukraine? Is this something that's driving polarization further? It is driving polarization further. It's so you have Russians, second, first, second, third generation Russians here who are very concerned that there seems to be support of Vladimir Putin and the war among um, younger, often um, convert populations. And Rokor itself has not decried the war. They have implemented prayers that there's sort, there should be a sort of a cessation of violence between the two countries, but. If you if you recall, in 2007, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia came back into canonical communion with the Russian Orthodox Church. And so when you have the Moscow Patriarchate, especially Patriarch Kirill, saying this is a metaphysical war and, and backing Putin on it, and you have a church that is aligned with the Moscow Patriarchate, there's really no wiggle room for clergy to dissent. Just on a different topic, we've obviously over the past few years, there's been a bit of a bug going around, which has affected faith communities because uh, you know, obviously a lot of them revolve around a whole bunch of people coming together every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For some faith communities, that's been fine. They worked out how to use Zoom. And for others, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a, sort of a drift into conspiracism yeah. and anti-government sentiment. What, what's been the case within Rocor? What's really fascinating to me is, again, I think that polarization comes up with COVID. So you have, you have communities of mostly Russian-born believers who, you know, they ag- agree with public health protocols, they agree with vaccinations, and then you have sort of younger converts who take to social media and even some priests who say, look, don't take the vaccine. It's part of the deep state's agenda to to harm our bodies. There are some priests saying that it's a sin if you take the vac- a vaccine. There's all sorts of conspiracies linked to to Judaism and pedophilia and everything in between about these vaccines. And even the idea it's um, itself that there is no COVID or that COVID is not sort of a communicable, a communicable disease, but rather some sort of invention of the deep state to keep us all in line and keep law and order. So there's, there's, uh, it runs the gamut in Rocor. And one thing for sure that I find totally fascinating is that while Orthodox Christianity, by and large, declined in membership over the past 10 years, and specifically during COVID, Rocor has seen an increase in the building of parishes and an increase of converts overall, especially during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And they were uh, one of the few Orthodox jurisdictions that didn't really close their doors. Some of them met in secret. Um, in defiance of state uh, laws, uh, public health laws. But they're seeing, because of that, they're seeing an 
increased interest among far-right Christians who think, wow, look at them. They're, they're so strong and powerful in their faith that they are willing to defy public health laws and, you know, hold their church services, serve communion, etc. One of your other areas of research is into the role of physiognomy uh, within these spaces. Could you tell us a little bit about what you've been looking into there? Yeah, so I'm interested in, okay, so it's th- this is a really hard word to say. I will say that up front, right? It's really hard. And in the UK, they say it physiognomy, which I think is so much easier to say. So I'm just going to use that term. I'm not, my G's are never that great. Um, but it's, so it, in the far right in general, online and social media, this idea of a physiognomy check is very popular. And it's in, increasingly popular among Orthodox far right as well. And it's usually sort of a, a derogatory query uh, question that's in reference to someone that they believe should not be part of their group. So Blacks, gays, Jews, feminists, there's like an endless list, right? And so through this uh, use of this term and its associated ideas, they create what I term visual verification, which is sort of looking at someone's picture, looking at their digital profile and saying, okay, this person is, it should be inside or outside of our group. So it's really a sort of online collective form of gatekeeping. And it's based on someone's face shape or their assumed race, their ethnicity, their weight, their height, hairline, uh, potential gender identification or sexual um, identification. In fact, a lot of people actually in the far right community, because they don't like me very much anymore, they'll use it in, um, in reference to me because my uh, my husband's last name is Swartz and I took it as a hyphen. And they'll say, oh, look, her last name is Riccardi Swartz. Uh, she must be Jewish, which means that she's trying to infiltrate us and stop Christianity because the Jews are evil. That's what they think. So, you know, my my next book project looks at how this idea of physiognomy is not new. It has a long history linked to um, eugenics-based racism in the United States and to European fascism. But what I see now is sort of this bigoted biometrics online, uh, religious biometrics online, that really reinvigorates scientific racism through popular discourse. So that's what my next book is about. Uh, You mentioned you've received some feedback. What's been the, I guess... There's a, this is a three-parter. What's been the feedback generally? What's what's been the feedback from these sort of more radicalized communities? And what's yeah. been the feedback from the people who you actually write about in the book? So the the general feedback is, you know, among scholars and and people who read the book who are, you know, just I wrote I wrote the book as for a public audience as well. So it's a crossover trade academic book, which means it's really accessible to I think most people. It's I've had really great uh, sort of engagements with people asking me questions about my book, having uh, teaching my book, and I've come and guest lectured in classes. So it's been really phenomenal. In terms of the far right, most of them don't understand how anthropology works. So they think, you know, they call they love to call me a journalist, which they see as sort of a slur um, because they don't like journalists. And they think that I've so- somehow embedded into the community and lied to them. And it's like, look... There's way too many protocols in place for anthropologists to ever be able to do that. And ethically, we wouldn't as well. I mean, that's just, you know, it's not something that I would ever do. So, but they they take that idea and they roll with it, of course, and they incite violence. I mean, there's been death threats and doxing and all sorts of crazy things. And it's not, you know, it's not just me. It's anybody who writes about far-right orthodoxy. So I have uh, several scholar friends who have also received the same sort of hateful feedback. And it's just part of, you know, it's just part of the 
the problem, especially when you're a woman who works on uh, the far right. In fact, I was I was at an academic conference just uh, just a few days ago, and there was a panel of uh, of us who work on the far right, women and non-binary scholars. And somebody in the audience said, this is amazing for us because we never get to see a group of women and non-binary people who work on the far right. Usually it's men because it's such a dangerous enterprise. And it is it is dangerous. Now, from the group itself, at first, when I, I published a few sort of public-facing essays about the group, the, the abbot called me. He asked me to repent. He was really angry about the way he was depicted. And... You know, my response to all of the people in the community who wrote me was, these are things you said on the record. Are they correct? And they would say, yeah, they're correct. And I would say, well, you know, I I don't know what to tell you. There's, you know, I'm not painting you in a light that you haven't already offered to the world. So, um, <laughs> you know, this is who you are. And, and, and I think that what you believe, whether I agree with it or not, is something that people should understand that we have to reckon with and think about and figure out why this is important for you in this particular moment. Just finally, Sarah, a little bit off the topic of Rocor, but uh, recently in the midterm elections, uh, James J.D. Vance hmm. has been elected as the, the senator for Ohio. He's uh, considered, I think, to be one of Appalachia's most famous exports, although I was shocked <laughs> to discover in researching this question that he wasn't actually brought up in Appalachia, uh, but he's the author of the, the book Hillbilly Elegy and is yeah. sort of considered to be uh, a hillbilly splainer to the wider yes. populace. Yeah. What, does it, what does it mean that uh, this uh, person's been elected as the senator for Ohio? Oh, wow. It's, you know, here's the thing. There was this red wave that everybody assumed would happen, right? And it didn't. It was, I saw somebody on Twitter say it was more of a midterm spotting, which is uh, true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and, and so there's this, I, there's immediately this thought, well, maybe Trump is discounted, right? But we have to remember that JD Vance was endorsed by Trump and that he's a massive Trump supporter. That's important because it, chances are Trump will run again in 2024 and he's going to have to ask somebody to be his <laughs> vice president. And so we have to think about the people who are now in positions of political power that Trump could fall upon. Obviously, Marjorie Taylor Greene might be on the docket, but I wouldn't also discount J.D. Vance. I know all of the sort of eyes in American um, news media right now are on Governor Ron DeSantis because of how large of his uh, his win was. But I don't think we should discount somebody like J.D. Vance. He has a compelling type of populism, even though his his view on the world is he has very narrow vision. He ignores diversity, um, uses it as sort of a, a joke, and he's invested in sort of recapitulating these stereotypes about Appalachia. He still knows how to hook people in with sort of this folksy idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And so I think that he's somebody to watch as we go into the 2024 election cycle, because if Trump is running, he Vance may be well be well be on the bill with him. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you online, you have a website at ricardiswartz.com, no spaces, and you're also on Twitter while it still exists at Riccardi Swartz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And folks, uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully with Andy. Until then, Global Intifada is up next. See you later.
Will the devil put the coal in the ground? Devil put the coal in the ground. Buried it deep, it'll never be found. Devil put the coal in the ground. Say that'll be a diamond someday. That'll be a diamond someday. You belong gone and dead in a way. That'll be a diamond someday. Will the devil put the coal in the ground? Devil put the coal in the ground. Say the devil all day, get a follow man down. Devil put the coal in the ground. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Join us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom. Interactive theatre, 7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday, 24th of November at the store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change, Definitions of Freedom. The Change is presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter. 